uh, feel free to do that. Wednesday, 6.30 in the library. Okay, let's get into our Bible study, which means we're going to get into 1 Corinthians chapter number 8. So if you take your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter number 8, we're ultimately going to be starting in verse number 7. We're going to go down to the end of the chapter, and the title I've given this message is The Paradox of Freedom. The Paradox of Freedom. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have heard of this phrase, catch 22? Catch 22. Most everybody's heard the phrase. If you don't know where that comes from, it's actually a movie. And the idea was, it's a, it's a military theme, and it's a paradox, this catch-22, that basically says this. In order to be excused from combat, a soldier must be declared insane. And in order to be excused from combat, a soldier must request leave. But a soldier who requests leave of absence from combat can't be insane, because that's the sane thing to do. So... Everybody's forced to go to combat. That's, that's the, that's the catch-22. Um, it's an example of a paradox. A paradox, very simply, is something that is counterintuitive with the result of the statement. It's similar to oxymorons, like deafening silence, or bittersweet, or old news, government organization, <laughs> jumbo shrimp, Working vacation, or slightly pregnant. <laughs> so these are things that, you know, when you think, you think, oh, I don't know. If, okay, so in our continuing study in 1 Corinthians chapter number 8, uh, we're going to see in verses 7 to 13 a new paradox. And the paradox is Christian freedom. It's Christian freedom. And you're going to see that as we go through this. Now, we know it's said frequently, freedom isn't free. Uh, our United States democratic freedom comes at a cost, doesn't it? That cost is war. That cost is the lives of a lot of soldiers. Um, our Christian freedom, personal freedom in Jesus Christ, well, that wasn't free. It's just free to you. It cost God his only begotten son. It cost him his life. And so think about it. Similarly, there's actually nothing that God gives you that is solely for the purpose of you enjoying it. I mean, even your very salvation is the greatest gift ever is not just solely so that you enjoy it. After your salvation, you're still left here on this earth for the purpose of continuing to make disciples. I mean, if it was just about our enjoyment, the instant we get saved, we'd be gone, we'd be in heaven with the Lord, right? Uh, spiritual fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, uh, those internal characteristics, uh, those are given to us. Yes, they change our lives, but it's a, it's a testimony to the world of Christ in us. It affects others as well. The gifts of the Holy Spirit, we'll get to that eventually in this chapter. Supernatural abilities, well, those are all given to you, not for you. They're given to you for others so you can help and serve the body. And today we're going to see that even your Christian liberty, your freedoms, are not given to you just so that you can recklessly enjoy them. They're given to you so that you can serve others. Now, the Corinthian church, they didn't seem to understand this. Uh, it was a highly gifted church. We saw that in the very first chapter, but yet it was a selfish church, so they had problems. And the book of 1 Corinthians is written to address all of those problems. If they would have understood what we've coined as the theme 
of this book study, The Power of Community, if they would have understood this idea that we is greater than just me, right, then they could have avoided a lot of the troubles that they found themselves in. So the context, the background context of what's going on in the letter Paul's writing is idolatry. And meat offered unto idols and people eating the meat or not eating the meat offered unto those idols. But the real lesson is about balancing your knowledge with charity toward other believers. That deals with your freedom. So if you'll follow along, I'm going to start reading in verse 7. We'll go to the end of the chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Howbeit, there is not in every man that knowledge. For some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. But take heed lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see thee which hath knowledge sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. Let's go, Lord, in prayer and jump into this paradox of freedom. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word as always, and we do pray that your Holy Spirit would do what only you can do, and that is to take your word and make it come alive in our hearts and our minds. Help us, Lord, to see exactly what you want us to see. First and foremost, we want to thank you once and again for the freedom that we enjoy in Jesus Christ. Thank you for freeing us from the bondage of our sin and giving us enough knowledge through the scriptures to not be stuck in a lot of these areas where people find themselves frustrated. But yet, Lord, we will see today how very clear it is that, that this freedom, well, we need to use it as an opportunity to serve others. And I pray that you would give us your mind, and I pray that you would help us to see how we can leverage these things to help others who haven't yet maybe figured out some of the things we've figured out. We love you, Lord, and we trust these things to you, and thank you in advance in Christ's name. Amen. All right, the first point that we're going to start with, number one on your outline, is biblical knowledge brings liberty. Now, this is something that we've already seen, and this is briefly going to be a little bit of review. So letter A is the promise of knowledge. This really is taking us back to the first six verses, which we covered last week. But what we saw last week is that proper knowledge about idols gives you liberty. In other words... If some meat was offered to a pagan idol in a temple and then after the priest took his and they sold it out the meat market in the back of the temple or whatever, can you eat it or can you not eat it? He says, look, an idol is nothing in the world. There's no power. There's really nothing to it. Eat up. Your knowledge about the truth sets you free from the bondage of having to worry about a lot of these religious pagan superstitions, right? There's no restrictions on you. Why is that? Because God gave us the proper knowledge of those things. This is the promise that it has. And knowledge is a very important thing, right? Because you can't possibly know what it is you're supposed to do or how it is that you could possibly even please the Lord if you didn't know what it is that he tells you. That's why we're so emphatic around here about the teaching of the scriptures. Uh, when we study the Bible, we see some things that are very, very clear. For example, Christ came to set you free, Luke chapter 4 and verse 18. Amen? 
That's what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us in John 17, 17 that His Word is truth. And His Word governs the universe. And we see in John chapter 8 and verse 32, actually we've seen it several weeks in a row, that the more you know, the freer you become. These are truths that we get from the Word of God. These are promises that we get because of the knowledge that He's given us through His Word. But that freedom is not just for you to enjoy in a bubble. And certainly not for you to take and then look down your nose at others who maybe haven't figured it out yet. So Paul warns us that, well, you may have some knowledge. You may not have it all, not yet, right? So we saw in verse number two, if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. No matter how much you know, friend, there's more out there to know. There's more that we can understand so that we can better obey and serve the Lord, right? We need the rest of the story. And until we get the rest of the story, we need to be careful. And we need to be careful because partial truth is a whole lie. Partial truth is a whole lie. Uh, Remember with me to the story back in Genesis chapter 20 where we have Abraham and his wife Sarah And they go into the land of Gerar, and the king is Abimelech. And Abraham does that thing. This is actually the second time he does it. How he pulled it off the first time, I don't know. And then he did it again, where he's afraid because Sarah is probably, you know, a real looker. I don't know. He's worried that these pagans are going to kill him and take his wife. And so out of cowardice, he concedes and he he convinces Sarah. He says, look, let's just say you're my sister, (laughs) So if they take you, they at least won't kill me. How about that? And she goes along with it and actually is praised later in the Bible for her submission. Uh, God rescues her. So Abimelech takes Sarah, and he's going to make her his wife. God jumps in, and he's like, hey, Bim, (laughs) don't do that. Uh, This is a problem. That's his wife. He's like, whoa, I didn't know it was his wife. And he said, yeah, I know. Uh, Abraham's actually a prophet, and that's his wife. Give her back. And he'll pray for you. And he's like, yeah, but I didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, I know you didn't do anything wrong. Just go give her back. And so he goes to give her back. And in verses 10 to 12, this is awesome. And Abimelech, now he's confronting Abraham. He's ticked, right? He's like, he confronts Abraham. He says, what sawest thou that thou hast done this thing? What, what made you think that you would come and lie to me like this? Abraham said, because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place. Well, they kind of misjudged that one, didn't he? Apparently, Abimelech had a little more fear of God than maybe even Abraham did. Surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will slay me for my wife's sake. Notice Abraham, verse 12. And yet, indeed, she is my sister. She's the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. You know what Abraham just did there? He told a partial truth. You know what the whole result of that? He told a whole lie. That's what he did. And yes, teenagers, it does work that way. (laughs) A partial truth is a whole lie. That's how it works. Uh, You know, sometimes we're just a little too smart for our own good, aren't we? So let's look at letter number B. Uh, Letter B, letter number B, that's weird. (laughs) The pitfalls of knowledge. There's a promise and now there's some pitfalls, okay? And this is really where we're going to get into starting in verse number 7. We already know that knowledge puffs up. We saw that in verse number 1. Uh, knowledge can cause pride 
and certainly pride is a pitfall. But we're going to look at what we see now starting in verse number 7. And so the first pitfall that we're going to see is seeing the spiritually impotent. Seeing the spiritually impotent. In other words, verse 7 where it says that Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge. For some with conscience the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. That, that's referring to some people who have this weak conscience. They're referred to as spiritually weak, without power, impotent, spiritually impotent. They don't have the strength spiritually that they should have. Paul defines that for us in Romans chapter 14, first couple of verses. Very, there's a lot of parallels in Romans 14 today. Where it says, Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. Don't argue about it. For one believeth that he may eat all things, and another who is weak only eats herbs. Okay, so the person who is weak is the one who has to watch and limit what he eats because he's not sure. He doesn't quite have the knowledge yet. He's not fully free in his understanding of the Lord to be able to say, I can eat anything I want. And so, like the people in Corinth who are worried about the meat offered to the idol and the temple, he says, hey, here we have this situation where the one who has to limit and watch what they're going to eat, well, they're the ones that are considered weaker. And that's what we see in verse number 7 of 1 Corinthians 8 as well, whereas those who are stronger have more liberty. They can eat whatever they want. So their condition, these weaker people, right, is that they just don't all know everything that you who may consider yourself stronger actually know. They don't understand that. Verse 7 says, again, Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge. Well, what is that knowledge? Well, it refers back to verse number 4 where it, it says that an idol is nothing in the world. They don't understand yet that there's no power, there's nothing to worry about, the superstition means nothing, meat is just meat, it doesn't matter, it's okay. They don't have yet that knowledge. They haven't been set free from that bondage to their conscience concerning meat offered unto idols. So their conscience as a result is defiled, thinking they're guilty of some form of idolatry, by eating this meat that somehow was associated with idolatry, even though they personally don't care about the idol. You say, well, that's dumb. They ought to know better. Yes, exactly. They ought to know better. They should, but they don't. Because they are like little children. And little children, it takes time to grow up. So if you're already grown... Don't despise those who are still growing. So continuing back in Romans chapter 14, picking up in verse number 3, let not him that eateth, that's the strong one, despise him that eateth not. And let not him which eateth not, that's the weaker one, judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. So typically that's what you find. The one who has more liberty ends up looking down their nose and despising those who have to limit themselves because they don't understand the truth as well. And the people who find themselves building these walls of legalism around them, they look up at the other people who the Bible calls stronger and they judge them because of their liberty and their freedom to do some things that that legalistic person can't get away with. Boy, the Lord's got our number, doesn't he? 
Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. Last time I checked, you weren't put on this earth to serve me. (laughs) You're put on this earth to serve the Lord Christ. And he'll take care of you, just like he'll take care of me. So how are these weaker brothers going to gain strength? I mean, who's going to tell them? How are they going to find out the rest of the information? Well, that's our job, right? I mean, we have it and they don't, and it's our job to tell them about it because increased knowledge increases responsibility. When you have more knowledge, when you have more understanding, you now have more responsibility that goes with it. Luke 12, 48, to whom much is given, much is required. So you have been given much. You've been given more understanding and knowledge than somebody else. So take that and use it to help them. That's the smart thing to do, right? So one pitfall of having the knowledge is not actually seeing the weaker brothers around you. That's a real pitfall. He says, hey, notice, not everybody has this knowledge. Not everybody has a clean conscience. Not everybody can eat anything. So, hey, stronger Christian with knowledge and freedom and liberty, be careful. It's a pitfall. You've got to watch out for that thing. You don't want to fall in that thing. So he says you've got to be careful about that thing. Another pitfall is, number two, sensing the spiritual issue. Sensing the spiritual issue. Verse number eight, but meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither for neither if we, not, if we eat not, excuse me, are we the worse. And so, listen, there is always a spiritual issue going on. It's never about the meat. It's never about, by the way, whatever the physical thing that you can see, feel, hear, and touch that's going on around you. It's never about that right? It's always about something else. Listen, you husbands know that's true. Uh, You go out and play golf on a Saturday, and you come home, and your wife's mad. And you think, man, are you mad about golf? She's not mad about golf. It's not about golf. She's mad because you decided to spend four hours on a Saturday playing golf with your buddies, and you didn't spend four hours on a Saturday with her. Or whatever it is, fill in the blanks. The idea is, whatever the issue is, that's not the issue. The issue is not the issue. There's an issue behind the issue. <laughs> and that's what the Lord's trying to tell you. Warning to all single men. Okay, so, <laughs> seriously, God doesn't care what you eat. God does not care what you eat. Uh, eat better, live longer, exercise are all great things. That's not what we're talking about here. There's no law forbidding you from eating the meat from the idol's temple. There's no more law for us to not eat pork or other unclean animals from the Old Testament dietary law. That's past, right? You're not the better if you eat. You're not the worse if you don't, or vice versa for that matter. In fact, if you remember back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 13, Paul's very clear, meats for the belly and the belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Really, it's just food. It's just nutrition, you know. It goes in one door and it goes out another. Sorry. (laughs) Colossians chapter 2, verse 20. Wherefore, if you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world. In other words, that's another way of saying, wherefore, if you're saved, you're dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world. Why then, Christian, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not which all are to perish with the using, 
after the commandments and doctrines of men? Paul says to the Colossians, I can't believe that you're so foolishly caught up in all of these legalistic rules and regulations that are man-made traditions put on top of you. You're free from that thing. But when you don't realize that there's really more to the issue, well, then those things become the issue. And those things are never the issue. It's always about something greater. So back to Romans 14, we jump into verse 17, where God clearly says the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Amen? So Paul admonishes the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 18, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. Because the things that are seen, those things are temporary, right? But the things that are not seen, well, those things are eternal. So what we need to do is train ourselves to recognize what's really going on behind the scenes. We need to see those things that are, yes, invisible. And yes, that is a paradox. But you can do that with the eyes of faith and the revelation of the Scriptures. That's what God is telling us. Y'all ever watch movies? Now, okay, now I'm stepping into another area where people might get mad because of the thing that's not the thing, but the thing that's not the thing for some people is going to watch movies. Uh, full disclosure, I like movies. And uh, the mov one movie that I've always liked, it's on the short list of some of my all-time favorite movies, is the movie The Matrix. High five for The Matrix. Some people back there, praise the Lord for godly Christian people who recognize the fact that the movie The Matrix is, is a picture of your Christian life. I mean, it just is. Because the, the physical world, that's not the real world. The real world is the behind-the-scenes world, right? And, and what's going on in The Matrix, well, that's just people coming and going and thinking and doing. And, but really what's going on is what's going on behind the scenes, right? That's The Matrix. And real Christians, right, with some insight, understand that that's what this world is. This world is like the matrix. <laughs> Listen, you know that our warfare, that's not physical, right? The Bible is very clear, Ephesians 6, 12. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, right? But against principalities, against powers, the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Uh, you know the 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4 say, for though we walk in the flesh, in the matrix, right? We do not war after the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or fleshly, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. So whatever's going on physically in the world, people come and go and do and say things that we like, we don't like, that rub us the wrong way, whatever. That's not the real issue. Those things are just symptoms of whatever the real issue is, which will always be spiritual so the pitfall is not being able to sense the real spiritual issue that's going on in your life the third pitfall is sourcing the spiritual infraction sourcing becoming the cause of sin in other words this one ought to get your attention because applying Knowledge, and this is what the Corinthians had to learn, and this is what we need to learn. Applying your biblical knowledge, your right doctrine, by the way, but applying it selfishly becomes the source for sin. It's tricky. It's tricky. And the sin, we'll see, is threefold. Letter A, 
Sin against conscience. That's the first thing we see. Verse number 10, where it says, For if any man see thee which hath knowledge, sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? That leads to a sinful state, such that that weak brother sees you with your freedom and your liberty, do something that their conscience won't allow them to do, and then they begin to think it's okay for them to do it, but the truth is they don't have that personal knowledge yet. They don't have that full understanding yet, and therefore they don't have that full freedom to do those things yet. So as a result, by following your lead, which, by the way, is okay for you, it becomes sin for them. See how that thing plays out? It becomes sin for them. Because again in Romans 14 and verse 23, And he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So in this situation, like in 1 Corinthians, if the brother goes in and he's going to eat the meat from the temple, and he's like, I don't know if I can do that. I doubt whether it's right. I'm just not sure yet. And he says, yeah, if you doubt and go ahead and do it anyway, for you it's sin. For you it's sin. Because you have to do whatever you do with full and complete faith. And we get our faith right. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by, say it, the Word of God. So the more we understand from the Word of God, the more we are set free. And we are set free to do whatever we want, and we can eat it up and have fun. Have fun. It's no problem. But we have to be aware of the others around us because the real issue isn't just eating. The real issue now becomes, well, the brethren. That's the real issue, isn't it? And so that's what the Bible calls an offense. If you glance at verse 13... It says, Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. Well, that word offend literally means causing others to sin against their conscience. To offend is to cause others to sin against their conscience. Jesus warns us in Mark chapter 9 and verse 42, And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones, in other, one, in other words, somebody who's weak, Anyone who says, whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it's better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were cast into the sea. I mean, there's a warning for you. God takes this thing seriously. You can't just take your freedom and flaunt it in such a way that it causes weaker brothers to fall. God says, you know what would be better for you? Tie your neck to a noose and tie it to a great big stone and throw you into the bottom of the ocean. That would be better for you than to have to deal with me when you offend these little ones that believe in me. So that's a sin. And that's a sin that is sourced or caused by using your freedom in ways that it was not designed. Uh, the second sin is sin against Christians. The sin against Christians. So then your behavior... Uh, to that weak brother becomes what it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.22 as an appearance of evil, right? We shouldn't have any appearance of evil, but to that weak brother going in and sitting down at you know, the pagan temple restaurant 
is, is a source of sin. That's, a, that's an appearance of something evil. And anytime you flaunt your liberty before weak Christians, you cause them to fall by encouraging it. So where they sin against their conscience, this causing of them to sin against their conscience, well, that's your sin because you have now, friend, sinned against your brother. You've sinned against your brother. This is your sin. Jesus wrote to the church in Pergamos in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 14, but I have a few things against thee. God's against some things. You don't want that to be on your list, right? You don't want to be on a list of things that God says, hey, I'm against you. <laughs> I mean, you could have a lot of enemies. Let me just give you a word of advice. You don't want that one. I have a few things against thee because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. What is that? Who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel and to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. Now we can go back and see the whole story of Balaam and Balak and how he tried to hire Balaam to prophesy against Israel and he said, no, I'm not going to do it. Make a long story short, what happened is is that he finally realized, I can get a lot of cash. I can get a lot of benefit, personal benefit in my life if I help Balak out, but God keeps telling me, I'm not going to allow you to curse the children of Israel. So Balaam had enough knowledge, and he was wily and subtle enough to use it in an evil way. And he's like, look, I don't have to curse the children of Israel, but I'll tell you what you can do, Balak. I'll teach you how you can cause the children of Israel to behave in such a way that God will curse them all by himself. I'll show you what you can do so that they'll just get cursed by God because of this sin. And so Balaam teaches Balak to put a stumbling block in front of these little ones, my brethren, the children of Israel. And God says, you know what, when you do that, I'm against you. I'm against you for doing that. In other words, in God's eyes, being a cause for somebody else's fall is worse than them continuing in ignorance. Being the cause of somebody else's fall, that's worse. It's worse than them just continuing not knowing yet. That word stumbling block is an interesting word. Uh, it's something that you would set in front of a blind person. That's really where it comes from in Leviticus 19. And verse 14, Thou shalt not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind but shalt fear thy God, I am the Lord. I mean, really, how warped do you have to be? Think about the literal, physical application. How warped do you have to be to see a blind person walking down the path and put a stumbling block in front of them? There's only one reason you do that. You want to see them fall. I mean, who goes into the home of a blind person without them knowing and rearranges the furniture? Who does that? That's what God is saying. That's how he's viewing this entire situation. So again, back in Romans chapter 14, this time in verse 13, let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. You see that? Do you see how your freedom can be a stumbling block? Do you see how your freedom can be the cause of multiplied sin? They sin against their conscience. Well, then you sin against them. But believe it or not, it gets worse. 
because you also have to understand that it's also, and this is letter C, a sin against Christ. A sin against Christ. And so in verse 12, when you sin so against the brethren, you wound their weak conscience. Well, you sin against Christ. You sin against Christ. Uh, Notice this in Matthew 25 and well, this whole second ch- part of the chapter of 25, but Jesus Christ makes this statement, then shall he answer to them, saying, Verily I say unto you, insomuch as you did it not to one of the least of these, speaking of his brethren, Israel, actually, you did it not to me. In other words, Jesus Christ associates himself with those little children. He associates himself with those little children. Uh, King David, remember the story of David and Bathsheba? And so he takes Bathsheba to be his wife and he commits adultery with her and in order to cover his tracks, he ultimately is the intellectual author of the murder of her husband Uriah the Hittite. And when he finally gets confronted with that by Nathan the prophet and he finally pours out his heart in repentance before the Lord and he writes out this prayer in Psalm 51 that is his confession to the Lord for that series of events and he says in verse 4, against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight? That's the perspective. In other words, did you actually sin against Bathsheba? Of course you did. Did you actually sin against Uriah? Of course you did. How about the extended family of Uriah? Yes, you sinned against all of them. But the most important thing David understood is against God I sinned. Against God I sinned. And listen, y'all, we could just camp out right here for a while and start making lists of how we fill in the blanks on how this works in our lives. Because when that brother or that sister does something to me, and I tell you what, I'm just going to do it to them too. You know, you know the golden rule, do unto others before they do it unto you. No, that's not how it goes. That's not how it goes. I mean, we just decide, oh, look, you know, it's not, I mean, the Lord would be on my side on this one. I mean, that was unrighteous what they did to me. Well, I don't know. I think you might have some knowledge. I think you might not have as much knowledge as you think you have. (laughs) I think you might need to learn a few things still. Let me ask you a question. Let's make it real easy. This is a good question for application. Do you see Christ in other believers? Do you? Do you see, when you look at other believers, can you see Jesus in them? And I'm not asking you if they carry themselves in such a way that it's very evident. No, I just mean by virtue of the fact they've received Christ as their Savior. Can you at least recognize that? Can you recognize when you interact with them, the Lord is in there? (laughs) Can you understand that? Because you should. Do you understand that that's true regardless of their level of maturity? Even if they're very young, even if they don't understand, even if they do foolish things, even if they're stuck in some bondage, they should know better. Okay, but we should help them. Knowledge brings pitfalls. And you've got to be careful because you might know some things. But maybe you don't know it quite as well as you think you know it. I mean, God says a lot of different things in this book, doesn't he? I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there. And if we just pick our favorite one or two or three things... And then just emphasize that all the time and think that the few things that we know is the automatic trump card to get rid of everything else that's in there too that we maybe don't understand that well. Well, that's just a sign of immaturity. That's just a sign that, well, you still have a ways to go and you need to be careful before you go about using your freedom to lead others into sin. 
So that's why the warning all the way back in verse number one. I think this theme carries all the way through this chapter. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. So even good, true, right, biblical knowledge, when applied selfishly, can lead to sin. Knowledge alone causes problems. And that's why it has to be balanced with charity. And so that's our second point. Biblical charity brings limitations. It brings limitations, as we will see, mostly focusing just on verse number 13. But first, I want you to remember, letter A, charity causes growth. Again, charity edifieth, builds up. That's what charity does. Charity helps others to grow. Well, that's ministry. That's what that is. So now that I have the freeing knowledge of God's Word in my life, right, my purpose in life is to help others get that too. And that's clearly communicated in the New Testament. Paul says in Galatians 5 and verse 13, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Praise God for that. Only use not liberty for an occasion of the flesh, but by love serve one another. Peter says virtually the same thing in 1 Peter 2.16, As free, we are free, and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Why do you suppose they even had to address that subject if it wasn't our nature to get that freedom and then use it selfishly? God didn't give you your freedom so that you can live your life without restraint. That is not the definition of freedom. That's the modern American Laodicean usage of freedom, to live without restraint. But let me just tell you, as one who has lived in a country where there was no form of law and order, full freedom, living without restraint, is not freedom. It's anarchy. It's anarchy. And so don't take your definitions from pop culture. Take your definitions from the Scriptures. Charity causes growth. But you need to also understand, letter B, charity costs you. And so here, in my opinion, is where the paradox is really manifested. Do you remember when we studied chapter number 7, those of you that have been with us? If not, you can just flip back in chapter number 7, look at verses 21 and 22. 1 Corinthians seven twenty-one. Art thou called being a servant? Care not for it. But if thou mayest be made free, use it rather. For he that is called in the Lord being a servant is the Lord's free man. Likewise also, he that is called being free is Christ's servant. You see the paradox? If you receive the Lord and you happen to have been an indentured servant, the physical property of somebody else, he says, yeah, don't worry about that. Don't, don't, don't care for it. Don't worry about it. Just know that in Christ you're free. And if you were saved, already being free in the physical sense, Oh, by the way, don't forget the fact that you're Christ's servant. So there's some form of inequality, is there not? Listen, charity, by definition, is never free, right? So you have to at least surrender your money. You write that check to give to a charity? Well, it costs you something. It's going to cost you some money to donate to a charity. Uh, you're going to surrender your time. If you're going to go and you're going to serve some group charitably, you're not getting anything back for it, but it's going to cost you to spend some of your time. 
And you may have never thought about it this way until today, but you know what? You're also going to cost you. You will have to surrender, and that's your freedom. You're going to have to surrender your freedom. And that's what verse 13 says. The stronger brother with his liberty willingly chooses to limit his freedom of whether he can eat or not eat the meat simply for the sake of helping the weaker brother. Again, Romans 14, this time starting in verse 18. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. For meat, destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it's evil for that man who eateth with offense. It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. It is good for you, friends, to live your life in such a way that now that you've acquired this Christian liberty and freedom to do things that maybe before you were confused about, to just go ahead and not do them now. To just go ahead and not do them now. That's the paradox of the term Christian freedom. Christian freedom. Listen, this is hard. I get it. It takes a higher level of spiritual maturity to be able to pull this off. I understand. Especially once you have been delivered from whatever bondage you had found yourself in. You sure don't want to feel like you need to go right back into that same thing. But you are not. You are not in bondage to it anymore. It's an entirely different category. Now you're just simply using a situation for ministry, which is what Paul did all the time. Soon enough, in a few weeks, we'll be seeing this, right? In just the next couple of weeks. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, you could flip over in verse 19, where Paul said, for though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all. Why? That I might gain the more. For the sake of ministry, I have been set free, but I willingly make myself a servant unto others. Why? So that they can be free. And he goes down and he gives all the examples, starting in verse number 20. Unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under law as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law as without law, not being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak, here they are, became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. That means I'm not eating the meat from the idol's temple either. If it'll help them. I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be a partaker thereof with you. So the admonition is clear. Don't let dumb physical issues hinder your ability to invest in true eternal riches. So let me take a minute and just give you some modern examples of Christians abusing their liberty. And the number one example is far and away the number one example. You can argue all day about who's number two, three, and four, but one is clearly one, and then the others, you know, we could just spend all afternoon just thinking of stuff. But without question, the number one guilty party in the issue of people abusing their Christian liberty 
is in the issue of drinking alcohol. In Romans chapter 14 and verse 21, neither if they eat or if they drink, <laughs> right? And I'm sorry to inform some of the more fundamental brethren out there, but consumption of a beverage with alcohol in it is not forbidden in the Scripture. I'm sorry, but it's not. I know the verses you're going to go to. We can go there. That's not the issue. That, but that's not the issue. That's the whole point. The whole point is... Whether, can I prove, yes, of course I can prove it. We're not doing that today. The point is this. The point is that drinking is not the issue. The issue is the issue behind the issue. And the issue really is, right, because that's just the matrix. <laughs> the issue really is, what is the spiritual issue? Well, how will that action of you exercising your liberty, okay, I'll just drink a little. Obviously, getting drunk is forbidden. We're, we're not even talking about that. We're talking about that glass of wine at dinner. We're talking about whatever. How will that affect weaker brothers? How will it affect weaker brothers? How do you know that somebody's not watching you who will be offended? Let me ask you a question. Do you have any idea, can you even possibly realize how many people in your world you don't even, you're not even aware of that have been negatively affected by alcohol abuse? Uh, in our church, we have a ministry of addiction recovery. Um, if the guys who lead the addiction recovery ministry just exercise that liberty, how do you think that'd go? Uh, what about the person, your next door neighbor, you don't, you're not even aware of it, but they lost a loved one in a drunk driving accident. You have no idea the scars that people carry because of the abuse of alcohol ever since it's been legalized. And it is just everywhere. So it's not the issue, does the Scripture forbid or allow? The issue is, when is it ever a good idea? I mean, when is it ever a good idea? It's not the issue of prohibition. Because if you make the prohibition, okay, well, that's fine. That, that may be great for you. And that may be exactly what you need to do, but realize, like the man who can only eat herbs, you're limiting yourself probably because of some level of weakness in faith. Yes, but nevertheless, the stronger faith that allows you to understand it's not necessarily a sin, that freedom also then causes you to limit yourself, but for an entirely different reason. This time it's because you've chosen to love the brethren more than you love your liberty. And that's a sign of maturity. But when people flaunt their liberty and say, whatever, they should know better, that's their problem. Okay. Okay, baby Christian, just, you know, have, it, have at it. That's your business. Listen, it's not, it's not for me to judge. You don't serve me. You serve the Lord, but he's watching. So if you work in a business and that business throws a big Christmas party and at the big Christmas party there's free alcohol flowing for everybody, let me just offer you a suggestion. Don't drink water out of a martini glass. That's just dumb. I mean, don't walk around carrying something that looks like you might be drinking alcohol. That's just a bad testimony. Uh, people will get confused when they see you. Uh, if you're trying to win a Muslim to Jesus Christ, and you invite them out to lunch. Don't order barbecue pork. Don't do it. Why would you do that? Why would you do that when you could eat something else? 
Why would you cause trouble to the potential of your gospel witness for the sake of something that doesn't matter anyway? Can you not live without it? Of course you can. Is it a problem to drink water? No. Is it sin if it happens to be in a triangle-shaped glass? No. Is it a problem to eat pork? Absolutely not. Is it a good idea? No, it's not a good idea. Biblical charity will cost you your liberty. But I want you to remember, I'm going to end on a positive note. Letter C, charity is Christ-like. It's Christ-like. 1 John 4, 8. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Same word as charity. Jesus Christ, ultimate example, Philippians 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He laid down his liberty to be able to live forever because he never had any sin and the wages of sin is death. He didn't have to die for us, but he did it willingly so that we could live. You want to be like him? You live your life that way too. So let me ask you a question and we're done. Have you been set free yourself? Or do you find yourself still wrestling with the bondage of sin? If somebody were to ask you this question, God forbid your physical life were to end today and you died and you stood before the Lord. Are you 100% certain that you'd have a home in heaven? If you're not 100% certain, then you're still wrestling with that. You're still in bondage to that. But Jesus Christ came to set you free. He paid the ultimate price. It cost him everything, but he willingly did it so that you could come to him. You could receive him as your personal Lord and Savior today and be set free. Call upon him to forgive you of your sins and to give you that free gift of eternal life and you'll never be the same again. But maybe you're not in bondage to that sin because you've received Christ as your Savior before, but maybe you haven't realized until today that that freedom that you've gotten, you're not really that free (laughs) to do whatever you want without sinning anyway, right? We are here to help and to serve others because we is greater than me and that's the theme of first corinthians so hey christians do you have knowledge do you know that you have been blessed in your life so that you can be a blessing do you know that you have a ministry purpose in your life do you know that your victories and your experiences even the negative ones are to be leveraged to help others do you know christian the high value that God puts on men, especially little children. See, that's the paradox of Christian freedom. You're totally free to never be free again. You're totally free to never be free again. Sounds strange? It's really not that strange. If you're a parent, you know how it works. You're an adult. You can do whatever you want in the castle of your own home. But you have children and you willingly limit what you do because you want to help your kids grow up right. That's charity. God's just asking you to be Christian parents 
in the body of Christ. That's what he's asking you. I have a couple of questions for reflection at the end of your notes. In what area do you need to show self-sacrificial charity? What would God be speaking to you about today? What area of freedom is God asking you to willingly lay down for the sake of ministry? Do you love your liberty more than the brethren, or do you love the brethren more than your liberty? That's the question I want us to deal with. Let's pray together and we're done.